Hi, I'm Shreya Bakliwal and this is Women Who Build Podcast. I was in middle school when Paula Mariwala gauged the potential of the Indian startup ecosystem and started investing through Seed Fund. Paula is the managing director of Seed Fund Advisors, a venture capital firm which invests in early stage companies in India and is also the co-founder and president of Stanford Angels and Entrepreneurs India. She has decades of entrepreneurial and operating experience in the technology sectors of both the US and India. Paula holds an MS in Applied Physics from Stanford University and BSc Honours in Physics from St. Xavier's College in Mumbai and sits on the alumni boards of both institutions. I could not have been prouder to launch this episode. Now, without further delay, I have Paula for you. Hi, Paula. Thank you so much for joining in today. Hi, Shreya. Great to be here and uh, to exchange ideas. Yes, absolutely. And you know what gets me excited? It's the fact that you've been in the entrepreneurship and venture capital spaces in both Silicon Valley and India. I would love to know how did it all start and what are the differences that you see between the two ecosystems? Yeah, so it's, uh, you know, it's been a long journey now that I look back. It was not something that was planned at all. Uh, you know, I trained as a physicist, uh, first in Mumbai University at St. Xavier's College. And uh, uh, then I went on to study in the U.S. I landed up at Stanford University, one of two women in the Department of Applied Physics in the 80s, uh, one of four Indian women on campus uh, in grad school. You know, being on campus, being in Silicon Valley at that time, uh, you know, it was wonderful, wonderful experience. It really opened up the world to me. It also opened up the fact that you don't have to be siloed. So, for example, obviously in India, when you select science at grade 10 or grade 11, then you study PCM or physics, chemistry, math or, or PCB, as we used to call it, the biological sciences that pursue medicine. Uh, even at that level, I decided to choose, though I had gotten into uh, engineering um, and IIT, I decided to pursue uh, physics, you know, then continued to go, you know, to the U.S., uh, it was a very male-dominated field, uh, physics, all hard sciences were at the time. Um, and, you know, even when I landed up at Stanford, it wasn't very different. In fact, it was even more male-dominated than in India. So I landed up in a very hardcore uh, hard sciences field. I pursued uh, technology after that. Um, you know, as I moved from physics to applied physics to sort of applied research in optical communication, worked with telcos and some other interesting startups. I started recognizing that really to feel fulfilled in your profession, you need to open up your mind. You can't be very siloed. Uh, At least that's what I personally was enjoying. So uh, I recognized that while I loved physics, what I loved more was connecting dots to understand how technology could be used, how I could solve people's problems. Because as a uh, physics student, I think my best skill was problem solving. In addition, I learned, uh, like I said, how to connect the dots, which also meant you to understand other people, think from other perspectives. With all this, I pursued a career in technology, did some uh, development work, did sales, came back to India. Uh, I started a business in fiber optics. Um, It ended up being less and less of technology as technology matured and much more about managing customers, managing teams and growing. And then, you know, after a point, it was sort of, 
I knew everything there was to know about, uh, let's say, fiber optics, optical communication. Uh, I was doing some instrumentation and so on. So I started also feeling restless. At the time, uh, you know, one of uh, uh, my mentors and one of my our family friends, my father's old partner, he, uh, you know, was saying in 2000 that, you know, the whole world was looking at startups. I had come back from Stanford, from the Tilken Valley. So, you know, let's start uh, this uh, look at these dot-coms and so on. But I was still new back in India. I was focused on fiber optics. I also had young family. So, you know, I said, no, no, not now. And it was just as well, it all just, you know, the dot-com bubble burst and so on. But that seeded the whole thought in my mind. I'd also worked for a startup in the US, which was a funded startup. So I knew the whole VC scene. Of course, being in the Silicon Valley and Stanford, you're surrounded by entrepreneurs. I'd taken a class where Steve Jobs had come and, you know, so... It was sort of ingrained. I also come from a business family full of entrepreneurs and so on. So after a few years, around 2005, again, uh, you know, uh, the ecosystem started responding that there's a need to be, uh, you know, for investors to look at early stage companies. So with my Silicon Valley background uh, and with some of the contacts I had, we started Seed Fund. So when I started, of course, I was trying to emulate what was in Silicon Valley and I wanted to do exactly that. Um, and since I'd been at Stanford, I'd seen how closely academia and industry work together to create this phenomenally valuable companies. So I went with that model. When I started, I actually went around um, visiting every single incubator in the country. I went to IIT Kanpur, from IIT Kanpur, IIT Kharagpur, IIT Delhi, uh, you know, uh, uh, CII Ahmedabad, at least 15 incubators in academic institutions, because I wanted to replicate the Silicon Valley model. What makes Silicon Valley what it is today? It's not just the IPO like Airbnb is IPOing today or DoorDash IPOed yesterday or, you know, all these fangs that we talk about, this huge amount of value that's unleashed. It's not just about that. We have enough companies in the world who are very valuable, right? You start with oil companies or you uh, look at... Uh, you know, some of the consumer companies and so on. It's not just about, you know, what, how valuable their share is. It's about creating that whole cauldron of ideas, innovation, where you can uh, take the risk. You can be proud to fail and you can go up and find mentors. You can find partners who will be part of your journey. It's about that whole uh, atmosphere, right? It's about being a very positive uh, atmosphere, uh, enabling environment. And that comes because of many parts. One is, of course, the whole uh, enterprising spirit, which I think we have in India. The other thing is, you know, you have to be a constant learner to be a good entrepreneur and a good investor. When you have proximity to some world-class institutions, like in Silicon Valley, there is Stanford University, of course, which I was very fortunate to uh, be a student at. Uh, there is UC Berkeley. Um, there's a, you know, even the smaller universities that they all have this culture. And there are no boundaries. For example, Stanford has no wall around it. You don't have, there's no gate pass. When I go to IIT, I have to take out a gate pass. There is no gate pass. You just enter. And it's symbolic, but that shows that ideas must flow across boundaries. There is an open culture. And, uh, you know, there is no saying that because I've studied physics, I will not talk to a computer science person. The whole idea is to break these silos because a successful enterprise is really 
not about being wedded to one idea, but to take that idea out there. And for that, you require multifaceted skills. So if, you know, if I compare Silicon Valley, coming back to your original question, uh, to what uh, is missing or what is different in the Indian ecosystem, the first thing I would say is that we have too many silos, we have too many walls. We don't have this openness. And even if you see our best institutions, we have, you know, obviously the best engineering colleges, institutes, which are all the IITs, that's just engineering. The business school is separate. We have the IIMs or, or some others. They're different campuses. We have started now integrating and having more departments. You know, there is a business school now at most IITs. There is humanities. College I went to St. Zavis was fantastic for arts and science, but no engineering, no, you know, other uh, streams. So we start by being siloed, right, from grade 8, Kota Jake Padu, do your medicine, do your engineering. That itself is very anti-entrepreneurial, right? So being an entrepreneur means you need multiple skills. And I think that is a big roadblock, I would say. Even today, if you compare Silicon Valley and uh, uh, India, even if we have 30 unicorns, I don't think that's a measure to uh, really say how successful our ecosystem is. When founders who fail will have no issues, when founders are have 20 role models they can go up to 20 or 200, when uh, investors are not going to judge you just by your pedigree, but by many other things. I think we need that kind of an open and enabling ecosystem. We are getting there. We are, uh, you know, if I look back at 2005 to now, there's been a huge change. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, I will give you an example. In 2007, we had invested in a company where there were two founders, um, IIT, IIM guys. And uh, one fine day, one elderly gentleman walks into our uh, office at Seed Fund and asked for me. And, uh, you know, he looked like a very, uh, you know, ordinary gentleman. And he said, he looked very distraught. And he said, you know, you've given all this loan to my son-in-law-to-be and, you know, he's, um, I don't want to marry my daughter off to somebody who's got so much money of some other people. So there was no awareness. There was no uh, sort of, again, acceptance socially and uh, monetarily because it was also very difficult to get exits. Now it's becoming better. So enabling ecosystem, I think that is the key word I would leave you with. It's interesting that you mentioned that a good founder is a blend of both multiple skills and openness. Now, in one of your articles in 2017, you said that we always bet on teams and not just the tech. We always support the passion, not just the numbers. So now there are three things when it comes to the right company. One, founder. Two, product. And three, market. So in your experience, what is it that you think we should place the highest value to? Essentially, how do you assess your investments? Yeah, so, you know, Again, I don't think there are cookie-cutter answers uh, because every investment really brings a different flavor. However, the founder is always at the center, especially in a very early-stage company. You really don't have um, insights into uh, you know numbers, product market fit, etc. So all you really have to audit is the founding team. Uh, and here again, the founder may or may not have a, a record that you can go back and audit. So it really comes down to seeing what is the motivation of the founder to do this um, and the ability of the founder to execute on it. 
So motivation is a big key and these are judgment calls you take. Um, you know, for example, if somebody says that, you know, I think this is, I have studied this particular sector well and there is this blank spot there and that's why I want to do this. Okay, that's a good answer, but not a good enough answer. Because if you have seen that, so have 20 others. What is the insight and value that you will bring with your proposition, which will make this white spot that scalable, sustainable, attractive value creation model, uh, which will create value for the investors, for the customers, for the founding team, and for you know whichever sector that you're going to be in. If the founding team or the founder does not have that insight, is not able to see a little bit into the future. Okay, you recognize the white spot, fine. But are you able to see, do you have a different insight with which you will create something that can be so compelling that you will not really have to, you know, throw hundreds of thousands of, uh, you know, we see money at, at it, but it will create a market which is a product which is compelling and you'll be able to see a product market fit. Also, uh, the founder must be open, you know, founders have to be great learners because you will recognize that your initial thesis doesn't work or some part of it doesn't work. And if you're stuck to, you know, your own ideas and you're not open to getting feedback or not open to accepting what you see, then, uh, you know, more often than not, the founder will, even with a great product, will not be able to go forward because you will face all these setbacks or, um, you know, you will come across uh, some sort of stumbling blocks. Secondly, the technology and the sector and uh, the market size is, of course, always important. But if you think about it, let's say Airbnb has uh, IPO today, so I'll just talk about it. Who thought in, uh, you know, I think it was 2010, who thought that you will, you know, offer your home for somebody else to come and stay? Somebody uh, thought of this because of their own experience and developed an insight into a future that did not exist. So created a segment which did not exist. How could you take on a hotel industry, right? And there were many uh, investors who didn't believe in it either at the time because it sounded like, okay, I, I look around me. So you're thinking in the present, a good founder is going to think a little bit in the future. And then the job of the founder is to make sure to convince other people about that future, viability of that future, the scalability of that future. So it's extremely important that you uh, judge various aspects of the founder. And yes, you have to look at the market and the sector in that context, in the vintage that you're talking about. So let's say this would happen before smartphones, uh, you know, in 2002. Uh, I don't think Airbnb would have succeeded, right? How would you have done a lot of the stuff that uh, is being done today online? Uh, you know, people can have smart cameras, they can take photos and send and, and so on. Uh, you have a GPS that's perfect and everything. So a lot of things come together to make a strong company, right? So timing is very, very important as well. Uh, technology is an enabler. Uh, again, depending on the sector, I mean, sometimes, for example, in medical technology or deep tech, of course, technology is very important. And you will put that above, let's say, market size or so on. So again, no cookie cutters, but at some point, all these things have to come together. At the early stage, I'm an early stage investor, is the founder. You can't replace the founder in early stage. You may love the idea and not love the founder. If you really have a problem with the founder, 
however great the idea, uh, I would not invest because at that stage, how am I going to replace the founder? Yeah. It's not either is it fair nor is it going to be optimal for that company. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that uh, good companies have a strong founding team. I was actually even listening to another thesis by Mike Moritz where he mentioned that good companies or great companies are the ones that actually become verbs. So, for example, he talked about Xerox, right? Uh, so, from your perspective, what are some companies that you may have followed or you've made investments in that, according to you, have become verbs or according to your friends have become verbs? And what do you think they've done differently versus their peers? Yeah, so, I mean, I guess these are, uh, you know, consumer tech, usually the consumer companies. Uh, I have, for example, I've been using Zoom. We at Stanford Angels have been using Zoom since 2016. Right. And uh, we used to, that time, say, we'll do a video call on Zoom. And now, say, so let's do a, let's Zoom, right? So, it has become a verb. And uh, if you think about it, it's also a question of timing. So timing is is a big key, um, and uh, you know for me I think uh, Redbus for example, which was a company second company that we invested in at seed fund, uh, there was no bus ticketing company that was online, right? And uh, uh, people will say yeah we'll we'll go on Redbus, hmm. so it became a work. Okay. And uh, you know I remember that when we first uh, sold hundred tickets, we had a party. Wow. Uh, and you know, literally, we had a party and uh, said, you know, we sent a bottle of champagne to Bangalore the office of uh, Red Bus. And uh, you know, when we, I think, exited, they were doing hundred thousand a day. Similarly, with another company called Carwale, which was, uh, you know, car sales online. It started with second-hand cars and then quickly also included new car launches and so on. Um, you know, there was no organized way to sell a car online. I mean, anywhere, right? You just go to the Nukkar guy and do it. So, uh, they were the leader and when we uh, sort of exited, again, the number of cars sold on Carwale was, we could not have imagined that. So, you create a sector, a le- uh, not only become a leader in a sector, but you create a sector. And, uh, you know, like you say, make my trip or, you know, there are several, right, who created, uh, uh, you know, uh, sectors like this. So, yeah, I mean, the last 10 years, of course, we've seen a lot of this uh, happen in India. Swiggy and Zomato, who would have thought, right, that uh, my mother would order on Zomato? It's unthinkable, right? So, um, you know, she will say, uh, yeah, yeah, order from your phone, order from your phone, you know, with that Zomato or somebody (laughs) called Zomato. So, it has completely, you know, taken on our lives now. Now that we've taken so many names, I specifically want to talk about Flipkart. I remember the last time we spoke, you told me that you missed investing in Flipkart. So what was it then that you missed out on and how have you seen that factor play out? Yeah, so I will first talk about how we saw Flipkart. So this was in 2008, I think, uh, where, uh, you know, we got this plan and it's about selling books online. So we were high on our uh, reasonable success of Red Bus and Carvale, uh, saying, okay, you can do online selling. And okay, these guys want to sell uh, books online. Of course, they were from Amazon and we knew about Amazon, etc. But I said, yeah, India, where books online? We have, I had all these numbers about credit card penetration, uh, about, uh, you know, how much uh, people spend online because, uh, for example, in Red Pass, though the amounts were small, 
it was a hard time it was a hard uh, proposition to get people to pay online so it was all cash on delivery somebody had to go collect the money or deliver the ticket physically and collect the money when they had pitched to us uh, abidi had pitched to us there was no cash on delivery model there at that time because this was uh, very much based on amazon at the time so i just did a back of the envelope calculation how much would it cost uh if you had to do it differently and not just target the market which is credit card holders how many credit card holders really want to buy books online i thought of my own experience i said i will go down to crossword had already started by then this uh, bookstore chain uh and just a few years ago till then there were all your small format bookstores um and now i would doubt to crossword if i didn't find a book i'll tell the guy He will order the book for me. I don't need this, so I looked at my example. So we said, I don't know. It's going to be a very big market, you know, in your addressable market, or how much is a a book cost in India? The average book is say three to hundred rupees, hundred fifty rupees, uh, and then you know how if you're going to do cash on delivery or if you have to deliver it, collect the cash, get the book back, it's going to take a whole lot of money to make it big. Right. So my our thesis was that we are a small fund, and I think. for this to really become big will take too much money right now it's a very small addressable market i think we were right on both counts uh, they completely flipped to a cash on delivery model hmm. uh, i mean included that as their big thing and yes they had to raise a lot of money so uh, in that sense we were right of course had i seen beyond had i got that insight that bini and sachin had to think that going forward this convenience is going to be huge they were able to see that in future which i did not see we did not see at the time so we did not see the value that they would bring and to create that value how much capital they will bring for us it seemed very high i think you have to uh, extrapolate this little bit and see how behavior change can happen right uh, it's all about the timing as well so you spoke about extrapolation and timing what other tools does an investor have at his or her disposal before he or she decides to invest in a company the well, first thing the investors must understand is that it's 10 out of 10000 companies which really succeed so uh, you know you have to be ready to be proven wrong either way right. so that is the first part however you know one thing is and uh, you know i was just reading this book um, i think there's a quote by munger chat munger that a good investor must recognize their own mistakes and learn from don't repeat that mistake for good investor don't repeat mistake so you must always reflect and see you know what you've learned uh but having said that if i were to tell you what else to look for uh you have to uh, you know be able to break it down uh whether it's a enterprise or like a b2b or d2c or b2c company you got to be able to break down the whole process of executing on your idea and you must get clarity on each one of them and that will help you go to the next step so if you say for example i if an entrepreneur comes uh, says that you know i'm here because i have there's this large market india has 1.2 billion people all i need is 1% or 0.1% of the market share which will give me so many million people the starting point of the company is very wrong because you must start with whose problem are you solving and why so focus not on just the market size is a much later issue most people don't know the market size and if you know the market size too well others know it as well right so 
the question that you must answer uh, yourself as well as see what the entrepreneur wants to say, whose problem are you solving and how and also why? What is the pain point? Is it a nice to have? Is it a must have? Is it something that is not there at all? And, you know, hence we need to bring it out that this problem exists uh, and hence let's solve it. Um, and the third to, uh, question to ask is uh, what will entice the customer? What will compel the customer to really get you buy your product? To use your product because you can always give a product free and to really uh, you know make that product fit uh, the problem they're trying to solve if you are able to get the uh, team to answer this carefully and if you are able to relate to that and even sometimes you see more than the entrepreneur because the entrepreneur is so into the product you have to start thinking much more about the problem that's being solved. So sometimes you see very good problems which are being solved in a very innovative way, but it's just where too niche for a VC kind of investment. So yes, market size is very important. Also, the third thing is we stop sometimes at this, but you have to see what is the business model. And many times entrepreneurs say, I have no idea what the business model is, but I'm willing to find out by doing these, these things. Okay. Hmm. But there are saying, well, if the product is so good, people will come. Like a Steve Jobs, you know, I will get people queuing up. That's a shortcut solution and a, not a right answer. You have to be able to say, tell me if I'm giving you 100 rupees, what will you do with it to make sure that you move to the next step? And they have to be able to break it out and say, okay, I will come to this phase in my product. I will interact with this kind of a target user group. And... You know, I will then get that feedback and do this again or whatever it is, you know. And how will you actually do the revenue model? Again, may not fit all uh, uh, problems, but at least the person must think about. I will tell you a case of my, uh, one of my pet investments, of course, because it's just a unicorn, an academy. And I was one of the first investors. Uh, they did not have a pitch deck. Gaurav and Roman just came. They had no pitch deck. They said, please do not ask for a pitch deck. Please do not ask for my revenue model because I don't have one. And I don't intend to think about a revenue model right now. But I will create such a compelling product and platform for everybody to learn that it will become a huge company. And then we will figure out. Because they had thought very deeply about their user segment and about their product. They said, we will never have a team of sales. We will have such a good product that we will keep the uh, you know, people whose problem we are solving are customers with us. And, we, you know, at some point we'll get them to pay. Don't ask how, don't ask why, uh, why not right now. And, you know, we believed it. So, like I said, there's no cookie cutter model. But, you know, it has to be that you have to be able to go deep into that problem. And that, uh, and the mindset of the entrepreneur has to be very aligned with uh, that of the all the stakeholders. Now, since you mentioned an academy and also with uh, your other investments, obviously things go north and things go south. But when they go south, how do you manage relationships with your founders and also your partners within the firm, right? And how has that relationship evolved? Yeah. So I have to say, if I look back at how I was in the early part of my career as a VC, uh, you do get very attached to the company that you are uh, nurturing from day one, right? You uh, do get uh, 
uh, attached to the founders as well because you've sort of been part of their early journey. You've seen them go through their pains and their highs and lows. And, you know, it is a very hard thing to be an entrepreneur, you know, and, uh, and your heart does go out. And, um, uh, but you have to detach yourself and say that, you know, I will support the founder, but we, to support that means sometimes you take tough decisions, which may be good for the company as well, may not be the best thing for the founder, but it has to be good for, for my company, which is my fund, as well as for the company uh, that we're trying to build. And sometimes you take very hard decisions. And, you know, sometimes I've been very tough with uh, my entrepreneurs because it's good for them to make tough calls. For example, there is a founder dispute or, uh, you know, there is something at the board level. You have to do, I tell them, you have to do, we all in it for this company. So you have to do what is right for the company at that time, uh, which sometimes is not the best thing for the founder. So you have to sometimes replace the founder, get another CEO, which is very painful. We have done all of that. But if there is a good chemistry, like I've said earlier, uh, and if you can... Uh, convince the founders that uh, you know this tough decision is for the good of everybody in the long run it works so it almost seems like a great chemistry is key to nurturing the partnership between an investor and a founder and uh, an investor and his or her partners at the firm actually i was also looking at your portfolio and i saw how a few investments that you've made are in the climate tech space which i don't see too many indian or even foreign investors make and very recently, Chamat of Social Capital also mentioned that the next trillionaire will be in the climate space. So number one, do you agree with him? Number two, what are the opportunities that you see in the climate space, both in India and elsewhere? Well, uh, you know, I, I don't want to take backs on being billionaires, but certainly <laughs> a lot of companies which will create value will come from this sector. Hmm. Um and it's just because this is a sector which is going to create impact uh, all across. Um, it's going to be something that we need. For example, if you see the wildfires in the, all over the world, it's the kind of damage they have created, right? Or the hurricanes, right. or uh, even in our own countries, right? Uh, in country, what damage uh, air pollution is creating or water is uh, creating. So. These are the important problems to solve because the impact on humanity is going to be huge unless you can really solve it. Um, and these are tough problems to solve. Um, but thanks to uh, a host of new tools, uh, new science, uh, not new science, old science, but new technology, uh, I think these are now much uh, more efficiently doable uh, solutions. Uh, and that's why the whole word climate tech has emerged, right? There was no such sector. Right. Uh, sustainability broadly has not been the most successful for, uh, uh, you know, ventures, uh, venture capitalists, um, because it's, there's been long gestation, uh, difficult adoption, all those challenges. I think timing is the key, right, to creating value, like I said at the very beginning. And I think the time is now. Uh, we have seen the impact of uh, various things into our lives. The pandemic has really brought that into the fore. Uh, various environmental disasters have eroded value for all countries, all over the world, for all segments of society. Um, so it's not just something that the rich nations or the rich in a poor nation 
over, uh, you know, was, it was uh, fashionable to worry about. But I think it is now coming to a point where, um, you know, everybody's going to see the impact of neglecting the sector. When you put good talent to focus on these things, I think something will come out. So definitely it's a sector where uh, I am interested, not because I believe that that's going to, you know, I'm going to have the next uh, billionaire or, you know, so on from there. Yeah. Uh, but yes, that I will have some, definitely some more innovative companies out there. It is solving a big problem. Uh, it, we're going to discover some new things. So it's also the curiosity within me, which is uh, sort of addressing this issue. Uh, I mean, I funded a company called uh, Blue Sky Analytics from yeah. Delhi. Yeah. So, young woman founder yeah. uh, who is very passionate, uh, you know, a bit mercurial, but, uh, you know, believes that there has to be some way to use data to solve the air pollution problem. We have the data. So why not do something with it? Okay. I'm not exactly sure how this is going to go ahead, but it's also getting a, already getting a lot of traction. Terra.do, uh, you know, started by a phenomenal entrepreneur and uh, his team is also phenomenal. Uh, precisely looking for that, uh, you know, entrepreneur who will really get that idea for climate tech, which will, uh, you know, change the world. Uh, I'm working with a couple more climate tech entrepreneurs, uh, you know, who are making models to mitigate flooding, to mitigate, uh, you know, other wild, uh, you know, other uh, sort of disruptive disasters, how that impacts agriculture. And, you know, what is the use of all our technology? All we can do is um, find each other better, get better meals delivered to our homes. Right. I'm sure that same thing will do a lot more at giving us better food, at giving us better water, uh, better air to breathe. Uh, so... And you will have, you will have a lot of meat, you know, you have to separate the uh, meat from the shaft. You will have some ideas which are not sustainable, uh, which are uh, not, uh, does not fall into the unit economics, which is uh, going to be a big scale. Uh, but I think you will have a lot of collaborations happening okay. and people with different skills will come together to solve different problems. AIML are also buzzwords, but I think the point is that we are at a stage where we can do a lot with data. Right. So I think we are going to be driven by a lot of data, uh, a lot of tools which come out of looking at data, and which will. I think the what is key is again, uh, uh, like I said, in the timing, key problems are being identified. Right. Very pointed problems, and hence I think a lot of entrepreneurs can take on problems and solve. So. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, people say, okay, Bezos has put this fund, and this one has put that fund, and you know, uh, Bill Gates has said that. It's all good signs, but in the end, you have to bet that entrepreneur who has to exit. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree with you. Um, yeah. And uh, uh, now just coming to some personal stuff. Um, I want to know, what do you do when you're not investing? Oh, I don't invest all the time. <laughs> I love to read a lot. I'm a very outdoors person. I love to go for hikes and walks. Um I love to paint. I paint a lot. Oh, wow. I sketch and paint. And uh, I love poetry. And I uh, yeah, love to hang out with uh, with my family and friends. Uh, yeah, so I'm uh, quite a busy body. But uh, besides that, I actually have a lot of pet causes. I'm involved in education in a big way. I'm one of the uh, you know early members of the founding team of Kriya University, which started in Chennai. So I'm very actively involved there uh, as uh, 
the board of management i'm also the board of management of several other education institutions uh but kriya right now is very close to my heart I'm really working hard to build that out uh, i'm also very very passionate about uh, gender like i said i always recognized that i was very fortunate to land up at stanford as one of the five indian girls and uh, uh you know i recognized much later how what a privilege that was uh and i see that even today a lot of women don't have uh, the same privileges so very passionate about supporting women uh, at all levels so i support two or three big causes around gender uh gender education and environment so spend a lot of time i also uh, am part of two mentor networks uh, one is uh, um, you know because i do a lot of mentoring through various entrepreneurship things but independent of that there is a organization i'm very deeply involved with uh, called catalyst right. um catalyst india that's a, a, a mentor network for girls from lower socio economic backgrounds who are in engineering and uh, we mentor them a very high touch mentoring to make sure that they don't drop off or they achieve the same potential as you know those from other backgrounds right. and there's another one called the chandni network where we i work with these girls uh, from this organization called shanti bhavan which is right outside of uh, bangalore right and they're from really really poor families uh, and uh, but the education they get is like you know phenomenal education that shanti bhavan so there's this one girl i'd mentor she's written a book called an elephant chases doctor look up this movie called doctors of destiny my two of my mentees are in that movie wow so i love to mentor these girls because they're straddling two different worlds if you meet them they look like you and me they talk english like you and me they can carry off you know the same kind of clothes and bags but when they go back they go back to a very very impoverished family and they have this all because they were educated at an institution which gave them education uh, shilpa is doing a phd in the us right now at uh, in psychology she's been a another ma in bangalore and in mit and so on uh, another girl i'm uh, mentoring is just started a job after studying in uh, uh, in bangalore uh, in a, in one of my portfolio companies another girl is studying in in japan and so they you know like one of them is a mother is a construction worker so they come from all backgrounds but you see how they so they need mentoring of very different kinds so it's nothing to do with the kind of mentoring i would do with entrepreneurs but it is just to hear them out to you know be there for them and uh, i think that gives me a lot lot more satisfaction than even of course it's always nice to see entrepreneurs do well and give you return your capital quality uh, gold but this is a different return and different great um, it's amazing to see how a simple act of mentorship can bring about such a huge change in the lives of people thank you so much for your time paula i got to learn a lot about you and about how you think before investing this episode i'm sure will not only be helpful for investors but also for founders who are looking to understand what investors look at before investing so thank you so much thank you shreya thank you for all those very uh, you know insightful questions uh, which made me think actually i have to say and i hope uh, you know uh, audience can uh, maybe learn from uh, from this but i think more i think i will i learned a lot from talking to you so thank you